Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is the 106th episode of Between the Covers, an interview with Vicky Now about her latest poetry collection, Umbilical Hospital, and her short story collection, A Brief Alphabet of Torture. Some additional readings by Vicky Now, both prose poetry and poetry, will join work by Lenny Zumas, Carmen Maria Machado, Yunsung Kim, Therese Marie Myatt, and Micheline Aharonian Markham in the growing archive of bonus material at patreon.com slash between the covers. So do check this all out. And while there, consider supporting the show. Again, it's at patreon.com slash between the covers. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, poet, artist, and filmmaker Vicky Now. Vicky Now is the author of the novellas Swans and Half Mourning and The Vanishing Point of Desire, the story collection Oh God, Your Babies Are So Delicious, the much beloved and critically acclaimed novel Fish in Exile from Coffeehouse Press, and the poetry collection The Old Philosopher which won the Night Boat Books Prize for Poetry, and of which the poet C.D. Wright said, We are no longer used to the heart's engine revving with such quiet, lonely, insistent, anatomical intensity. Vicky now holds an MFA from Brown University, where she received the John Hawks and Feldman Prizes in Fiction and the Kim Ann R. Stark Memorial Award in Poetry. Vicky now is here today on Between the Covers to talk about both fiction and poetry, her two latest publications, her story collection, A Brief Alphabet of Torture, from the University of Alabama Press, winner of the Fiction Collective 2's Ronald Sukunik Innovative Fiction Prize, and the poetry collection, Umbilical Hospital, out from 1913 Press. Of her story collection, A Brief Alphabet of Torture, Michael Martone says, These pieces are elaborate piecework, perforated, whip-stitched, and distressed, field-dressed dissections of language. Tortured, maybe, but lusciously junked and juxtaposed, turned inside out and every which way but. No, in every way they make way. 
these tales tax and tantalize a taxidermy of turned transcendence. Of her poetry collection, Umbilical Hospital, Ray Armentrout says, Imagine an entity composed of sheep, wheat, assholes, clitorises, stars. Why not? That would be this poem, this world, a perfectly recognizable post-human world, which is also post-surreal. Vicky now is making it new. No, she is doing the old job of making us see what's already here in a new way. We're already part of the bunny frog and the sheep machine, and we're feeling fine. This is bold, fresh, necessary work. Welcome to Between the Covers, Vicky Now. Hi, David. Hi. It's such an honor to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with your poetry collection, Umbilical Hospital, which I, I think you could consider an ekphrastic collection in the sense that it's in an ongoing engagement with a film by an avant-garde filmmaker and painter, Leslie Thornton, and the film's called Sheep Machine. And I noticed that your latest chapbook, uh, God Expects You to Collaborate with Infinity, is also engaged with Sheep Machine. And your next book coming out later this year is also engaged with Sheep Machine and entitled Sheep Machine. So let's start with Sheep Machine. What What is this film that is inspiring you to be engaged in various projects with? Well, um, originally, I well, I was in Leslie Thornton class mm-hmm. classroom, um, her narrative immersion class when I was in a graduate student at Brown. It was my last year. And I waited a year to take her film course, and she was on sabbatical. And so when I wrote her and requested I could take her class, she said yes. And so during one of her class or classroom meetings, she... um, she showed me her films, her her binoculated, manipulated, uh, digitally manipulated films, um, and I was fascinated. And I approached her and said, "I would like to study one of your films, one of your um, binocular films." Um, she did a series on different animals, like spiders and sheep and so um I said I'm going to study it frame by frame she said you're insane (laughs) I think um I didn't understand quite the degree of what a frame by frame and its level of insanity um so when I took screenshots of each frame (laughs) I realized that for me to study one minute of her phone would take me a year and the manuscript would be so long. So I wrote like um, maybe 100,000 words of a poetic uh, study of her work. I thought, I, well, I'll break it down uh, to like 10 seconds per three months or something like that. <laughs> it takes a long time because there's like 60 frames within like a second or sometimes at 30, 30 frames per second for that's 30 frames in one second. And then some of them I 
So I end up with a lot of frames. And and are you speaking now specifically about your forthcoming book, Sheet Machine, well, as she, the forum? No, the, um, I mean, um, my chat book, uh, God Expects You to Collaborate with Infinity, was part of that long fabric of studying the whole work frames. I produce so much work and to put it in one. And so I approach the editing methods three different ways. I took one long fabric of the manuscripts and I edited for one manuscript. So when it reached 60 pages or something, I stopped the editing process and that became the umbilical collection. And then I wanted a chapbook out of it. So I, someone was approached me and said, um, we wanted to create a chapbook on a particular animal. And I said, well, I've been studying sheep for <laughs> um, months, <laughs> for years. And so um, I'm just going to take another part of the manuscript that I've been writing for so long. I'm going to edit that for the chapbook. And then Sheep Machine, I did it a complete different I like two different beasts, but of the same manuscript, but of the same. Um, it reminds me of like a long fabric, and you just make different shirts and skirts and dresses out of them. And yeah. so each book are different uh, garments of perception that I've uh, composed or restitch or stitched together. And so each manuscript has a particular aesthetic. So umbilical hospital will be will be be read completely different than Sheep Machine. Mm -hmm. And Sheep Machine is more more focus-based on, um, there's, it, I call it more of like a poetic essay. It's, there, there's a, there's a lot of um, research I went into. I research about sheep. I research about wool. I research uh, about philosophers. And so it's embedded in, and stitched with, uh, different nonfiction impulses that I've um, garnered across t time. Um, but in Bilical Hospital, I did no research. It was just based on what I observed from the screenshots of Sh Leslie Thornton's sheet machine. And it became very weird. The editing process is very weird. The whole thing is feels very weird. Yeah. And the titles that our birth from the manuscript feels really <laughs> weird because Sheep Machine doesn't have any titles. It's just one long essay-ish poetic uh, draw. But uh, Umbilical Hospital has, each poem has its own title. Yeah. Does that explain? That's very well explained. And, mm. and you've said before about the film, about Leslie Thornton's film, that the sheep do nothing but move around a digital canvas eating grass and then you say about your own work in relationship to these sheep that the concept is boring, but the actual art of writing it is not. And boredom has come up a lot in interviews with you before. When asked what books do you love, you often will name books where you describe one of their aspects as being boring. Uh, and you, you brought up Jelinek's Lust that you say you love, but also find boring, for instance. And you've talked about the importance of showing boring things in art. Uh, the importance of boredom in work. So when you say the, that the concept of the book, in this case, Umbilical Hospital, is boring, I almost feel like you're, you're paying a compliment in a way, that it's you're not describing a flaw. But I would love just to hear more about either your the value of boredom or the attraction to boredom. 
as part of an aesthetic? I think boredom is a sustained state of um, awareness, but it makes us feel jittery. Um, I get bored easily, but when I say I get bored easily, it often means that I'm not engaged enough. But when I talk about a book that's boring, I was thinking more from the reader's or the viewer's perspective of what they might um, respond or the perception of my experience would be. So there's an element of uh, harsh judgment in it, but it's also trying to give viewers or readers warning ahead that they might fall asleep in some in engaging with something that is very uh, deep and retrospective. Hmm. Um, and I think those re- demand so much attention that people have to sort of drop out of reality in order to continually be embraced by it. Um, I think sometimes things that are hyper-entertaining makes you really awake, but then you forget, you forget everything. Hmm. You forget that you were there. You forget that you even read that manuscript or watched that film. So um, I believe in a form of like hyper-boredom or some sort of things that are not that exciting on first sight. But as you dive deeper and deeper into the work, um, it's engagement switch from boredom to awareness. Um, And I also was influenced by um, a filmmaker. He's, I think, Iranian. Um, He did the ABC Africa. I'm not very good with name. But basically he says he likes films that make him fall asleep Hmm. because they don't, like, um, attack the viewers with, Um, and make you feel cheated later because you you feel like your time had been robbed and you didn't know you've been robbed. And I don't, I think when I tell people that certain works are boring, it's because I don't want them to feel like they've been robbed in any way. And I mean robbed as in time, which Mm -hmm. is the most um, valuable uh, resource that we have um, besides um, money. But um, I believe in that kind of resource and uh, channeling that resource and, and, and not being, as uh, the filmmaker said, abducted and then cheated hmm. um, out of our time. Yeah. So I give people warning. Um, I also think like what I do like on a daily basis is very boring. You know, like you sit down, you write, or I cook for like three hours, or I walk for like 10, and there's really nothing that it's exciting. You know, I'm not at a party, I'm not... Um, the the poems in Umbilical Hospital are very far from boring, which people are going to hear um, soon. But there is a way, there's a certain cycling through or rumination that happens with a very limited set of images. I haven't seen the film, so I don't know how captivating the film is compared to the poems. But in the Umbilical Hospital collection, we we have these images that keep reoccurring, sheep, wheat, windmills, and stones, among others, that we see in new and strange and surprising configurations as we go through. 
And I know that repetition and boredom are not necessarily related. Sometimes repetition causes the opposite. It can be incantatory and create excitement um, or deepen engagement. But I wondered if maybe you could speak a little bit about the um, the repetition. Uh, is that just a product of the engagement with the limited images in the in the film? Yes, it's a result of like that's what you see. There's just nothing. It's just sheep, and then <laughs> wheat of grass. Yeah. And it's just the wind blowing it from time to time. And then maybe when the manipulation takes place, it replaces these image in the second binocular, and so you get to see the left or the right side, and you see that switch, but it's only temporary. It shifts back to boredom again yeah. to what you've seen before and so it forces me to see deeper into the image and when I could not see the deepness of it I just state the obvious mm. when you state the obvious that's all you see is just sheep <laughs> wheat right and, <laughs> and then sometimes like when the when the, the sheep gets closed and they turn their their body around you get to see the asshole um, and so uh, what do you do? You just, <laughs> you just say the obvious. So I'm like, you know, and I didn't intend on like studying sheep's asshole, but, um, or their butt, but, um, and it, and, and it becomes almost like as if they don't possess those kind of, um, body parts. It becomes like almost like part of the machination of the landscape mm -hmm. so how do you depict something that blends in with the landscape and and yet you have you still have to identify it as something that's recognizable by our human experiences so i tried to get out of those realms as much as possible but i i when i said it was conceptually boring it's true i mean it's just there is nothing that you, why would you want to study like um i think lydia davids mm -hmm. she studied cows like real cows walking across the landscape at one point one of her manuscripts was born from that but at least they are alive these are like digitally uh, moving a sheep moving across landscapes so even if, even if I want to engage with the sheep, I couldn't even engage. At least she could walk out the door and attack them or run after them or or um, run a kate around them and see if she can get them to engage um, with her. But I couldn't get these sheep to engage with me, even if like I, bl I blew a tornado with my mouth across um, my computer. And so... Um, um, I had to figure out a way to be with it. And when I'm in, pr in the present moment, just writing as I observe uh, for 10 minutes that I voted to observing, because I, um, it was so beautiful. Mm. It was also very... I, I, I breathed for the first time in my life when I did this, these... Um, uh, ephrastic studies um, and it just it felt so empowering like the moment spoke louder than uh, 
what I thought the moment might be or could be or um, how it alters me. And so 10 minutes of my life devoted to this moment, and it felt very sacred to me. Hmm. And I produced work that I sort of, and when I, I wrote, I didn't read from the one yesterday <laughs> or the one before. I just wrote and I just abandoned it. And then when I sat down to like edit, I was like, wow, I, I did observe <laughs> um, digitally. <laughs> and I think it benefited me the most. It was more for me than for the readers. But, and I thought the reader wouldn't get much out of it because since it was for me. Yeah. And well, but you were wrong about that. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> well, let's this would be I, I would love for the for the listeners to hear some of the some of the poems before we talk any more about the collection. The night cleans her black tongue with the sleeves of my heart. The night cleans her black tongue with the sleeves of my heart, licking the darkness here and there. My soul like a dog upon my soul. The visitation takes place. She pile on a grass like blonde garbage bags. Any moment to be topple over at any moment. The wind greets the afternoon. Shadows cast on the cosmic walls. Tiny specter of uniformity. Tiny specter of death. I like to open my eyes and ears to the swollen afternoon. I would like this, and then I would like the sheep to spill their guts. I want this to continue on. And the next poem is called The Battle of the Gaze. Third leg must be invisible. There is no other way. Tribotic Windmill with alien face wears a hay mass. Stands there before the viewers, waiting for the battle of the gaze. Is there a simile in this discontinuity between man and man's perception of reality? Surely all the sheep bedding over the grass aren't just performing a purely cryptonic task of facial burial, the funeral eating task, and so on and so forth. And the last poem is on page 39. It's called, This is the Edge. This is the edge. To love the earth more than to love the edge of sleep and to love each equal and distant is to love certainty more than to love the surrendering of a certainty. This is at the edge. The windmill, dome-shaped now, more now than ever, has turned its back toward residium. What have you turned your back on lately? What have you betrayed? We've been listening to Vicky now read poems from her collection, Umbilical Hospital. So you, you studied with uh, C.D. Wright and Forrest Gander at Brown. Is that um, right? I studied with, um, with C.D. Wright, but Forrest Gander, I 
became more engaged with him after Brown. But I also was with him in one of the uh, classes that C.D. and Forrest taught. And they went to the cemetery to um, visit um, Robert Keeley um, at his grave, Hmm. I think. Robert Creeley? Yeah, Robert Creeley. And so um, I became more engaged with him after I graduated. But I always view them as like one person. So, um, Are there are there any things that either of them or both of them together imparted to you that you, you still hear uh, in your ear in terms of how you approach poetry? Um, well, with Forrest, um, I, uh, when I uh, meet him like over Pisa or or um, um, tequila. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if it's tequila. It's a mixed drink. It has tequila in it, but I couldn't remember the name of it. But he's really knowledgeable about, like, um, Spanish drinks or d- drinks that uh, are Spanish-influenced. Um, with Forrest, because his uh, present, being with him, his present... Um, he's still alive, and so it dominates my consciousness in a non-literary way. So the way I experience him um, as a poetic form in person, it's it can't I cannot um, state it in words at this moment. Hmm. Um, however, with CD Wright, I whenever I walk. Um, when I'm doing my long 16-mile walk um, in Vegas or in Henderson, um, sometimes I hear her voices. Like um, sometimes she'll she'll give me like advices on life, and those conversations I do record in my consciousness. Um, she says one of the thing that um, I particular remember about C.D. Wright is how compassionate she was, or she still is in my in my consciousness, or when I'm completely aware of her present um, during one of my walks. Um, I, when I took a course with C.D. Wright on a workshop, my um, grammar um, sometimes is difficult for me, and so it's hard to break certain patterns, certain mistakes that you make across time. And so um, CD, instead of berating me for my grammatical mistakes, she would say, you know, it's hard to break a pattern that you've developed over time, you know. And, And she just sort of was very compassionate. She didn't try to correct me. She didn't she didn't try to um, 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 impose her grammatical structure on me. She just sort of acknowledged that is when we develop a particular habit, we become so used to it, and it's hard to change. Mm. She just realized the humanity in all of us, and so. Um, having taken her workshop and see how compassionate and how kind she was to me in class, um, I'm every time when I'm I feel harsh toward me or toward anyone, I feel I 
feel her present and feel her influence, and and it makes me want to be compassionate, like the way she mm. has been towards me. Or um, she also gives really good hugs, like <laughs> like you know, like not those fake A-frame hugs. She kind of give you a full hug, like she meant it. You know, like mm. not like I'm not afraid of your skin or of. Um, um, a certain like um, what we see in our um, culture lately, where everyone is afraid to like um, express their humanity because they are afraid of a lawsuit or something. And I, I felt like she she just knew how to navigate the politics of modern time and so preserve her humanity. And I would like to be able to do that for others as well and for myself as well. Yeah. Well, when I, um, well, one of the things that I think of when I think of Forrest Gander, which is somewhat obvious, is that he he is in, engages very seriously with eco-poetics. And it makes me think of that phrase that Ray Armentrout uses in the blurb for your book, that she describes your book as post-human. And I, I wondered... Um, whether what that meant to you when she said that your work was post-human and if you agreed and and if so and and how do you see that um as a descriptor of it well i I don't know if i want to disagree with her (laughs) even if i do disagree with her um and i don't i don't know if uh, disagreement is the right um atmospheric response to that um I just know that um, when I study sheet machine, it's so unworldly. Like, I think Leslie Thornton's work is very post-human. Like, what she does is just really out there. She's just really wild in her um, imaginative faculty. And, And when I asked her, you know, like, where do you get your ideas? And she said, well, you know what? I don't follow other people's. Um, films making. I don't like. I don't go and read a bunch of these other people's work. I just keep to myself. And so she just. I think her lack of exposure to her uh, peers in her community may have shaped uh, uh, her post-human reality. For me, I'm fully engaged in. Our time, I converse with, and I watch a lot of films, and I try to read my peers' work whenever I can. I don't believe um, um, that what I read will make things post-human or anything. It just so happened that this manuscript um, it's an observation of what I was studying. So it, it, it's an observation, and when you observe, it is what it is. So if it's post-human, then it is. Right. Um, and what is post-human? It's like when everyone, n- no human ever exists, and it's just pro-form of like a, a very high-perform of um, reverse dinosaurs? Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it doesn't seem like... Post-human is a very... It's a word that you can use 
I think, like the word God, you know, like it's, it's. Well, she used it along with bunny frog and sheep machine, which also have these strange resonances too, I think. Yeah. And when you just juxtapose all that together, I feel like, like when a word has um, a, a congregation of other words that sort of don't belong together in a a group and when they coexist together like that I think it's to exude a particular kind of um, or to to say you know like you you're existing in a weird world without saying the word weird Mm -hmm. and so and cute post-human sort of give that connotation I I don't know how I feel about like umbilical hospital as post-human. Like, I don't even know what the manuscript is about now. It's, I edited umbilical hospital when I was in a hospital. So it was a blur. It was like, um, I need to send it to the editor soon. It was, I need to be out in the world. And so I didn't really sat down to read what I edited. Um, And so now that I had, like, that moment where I was just reading my manuscript, what what I felt like for the first time, it's it's another... I think it's a work that I can't memorize. Mm -hmm. Like, there's certain poetry collection where you just read a poem and then you feel like you can have it down in your consciousness. And I feel like umbilical hospital is relief from that position. Mm. It doesn't occupy me in the same way. Um, and I feel like a poem could replace itself with another poem. Now that I experience it with some distance. With some distance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I didn't mention when I was introducing you is that you're an interviewer of writers yourself. Uh, you've interviewed tons of, of great writers, and you conduct some of the strangest interviews I've come across, and I'm always looking forward to reading who you're interviewing. Your questions have included, would you cross a river for someone you don't love? Do you like drawstring pants, and have you ever worn them while writing haiku? And I used to think white people smell like butter. What do you think white people smell like? So I just want to ask you a couple of your own questions um, as part of this interview. To begin with, is there a poet, writer, or philosopher, dead or alive, that you would love to take a shower with (laughs) non-sexually? Well, karma works wonderful. Wow, now that I've been asked by my own question. um, Well, you can think about it if you want to answer later, too. Yeah, let me think about it. um, That's that's a really hard one. Yeah. That's a really hard one. I'm so glad I asked someone else, though. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so one one question that you've called one of your standard questions is asking guests, guests to break down a poem for you, to tell you where they were when they wrote it, 
to expound on the references that may not be obvious to readers, to talk about any research that occurred, and to recall, if possible, what they were eating when they wrote it. So is there a poem in Umbilical Hospital that maybe you could you could unpack those invisible aspects to? Oh, that's hard because I did it in one long manuscript and I took out to edit. Oh, so you might so, not have an individual memory yeah, with that I poem. Yeah, I don't have an individual because they didn't have titles. They didn't. It just, today I'm going to observe the screenshot and then I'm just going to data dump that observation into a file. Yeah. And then I'll just, and then it will be like, a hundred thousand words and then when I edit I'm like oh this look like like it has a shape of that particular poem so I'm going to extract that and um well how about I pick I have a couple others I'd love for people to hear okay and if any no pressure but if any thoughts come when you read it about any associations you have with the poem that aren't in the poem maybe you can share them afterwards so I was hoping you might read God has an archive of cancer cells, and then sonic uh, titillation. From Umbilical Hospital, God has an archive of cancer cells. God has an archive of cancer cells he uses on humans when he is bored. Is he bored here, inviting a skeleton to dine on the pastoral table grass? We bite and remove the horse shoe-shaped lips and kissed engine of melancholy away. We are certain we have been cheated out of 4.3 years of our lives. We talk about dividing our flesh before releasing our breath and evacuating our blood. But God is busy escorting a flurry of sheep towards a moistureless river where the sheep take small drinks of air and collapse when a mirage of thirst sweeps across the landscape. Sonic titillation. Raining doubt, raining sheep, raining twirls of memory. So an arc of wheat hovers over the bodice of sheep like a crown, and then the voluptuous asshole and its voluptuous clitoris against some suspended gravitational momentum. Such are the eyes of the silenced bunny frog, doom for sonic titillation. We are here and we are clueless about wheat, sheep, wheat-shaped eyes and eyelashes with angelic hovering crowns. And so we rotate our clitorises in circles, maybe even in semi-dictorial circles. Our pleasure is not a clock. I don't remember how this poem is born, other than that I just remember observing it. And that's how they are born. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's part of the post-human aspect, the way in which there's not this connection to, like, uh, the memory of, of its creation. Yeah, I have. I just remember that um, I took a screenshot. I pre-take like um, like a hundred at a time, and then I go down the list. And like today, I'm going to study like five of them, mm-hmm. or if another day I would do ten. And then once that, I just I don't reread my work. I don't reread to see oh, okay this this makes any sense. I just observe. 
and then write down my observation observations, put it into a file, dash it away, and then I continue on my day as if I've never done that before. And the next day, I'll do it, and I just repeat. I feel like it's like taking a shower in the same sour stall for like 20 years, and then like said, can you tell in 1987 what was your shower like in that shower stall? Right. I, I would say I took a shower, <laughs> yeah. and water came down on me, <laughs> and maybe some soap that I use, um, but I wouldn't be able to tell you. The I think that's, I think rituals sort of obliterates um, our consciousness and allow um, the ontological. Um, consequences to unfold without memory. So hmm. um, I, I don't know if that's post-human or it's just that um, in order to exist, you don't have to be human anymore. Mm-hmm. You can be a system of reality that observes, that collect, that stash data away, and then you are there and then you're gone. Well, as a way to transition from a discussion of your of your most recent poetry to the story collection, A Brief Alphabet of Torture. I'd love to talk about what VK now is foregrounded versus another. What part of you comes forth more when you're writing in sentences versus in lines? Um, do you do you have any sense of, you know, systems of reality that come to the forefront more when you're writing prose? When I write... Um my muse would arrive, and it often arrived so fast. So I would drop everything to attend to that muse. I might be walking for five minutes, and suddenly it came to me. So I would stand in the middle of the street. I would type out everything that came to me in a rush, and then I move on. And I do that with longer pieces as well, where I, it came to me, and I would be writing for like eight hours straight, to complete like a 10-page um, short story, and and that's how they're born. Mm-hmm. Then I wouldn't read them. I just stashed them away until someone requests for like a short story, and then I pull them out, and I'm like, I might edit like one word, and then I send them out into the world. Wow. So I do very little editing. Um, and if, But if, I would imagine, maybe I'm wrong, but I'd imagine like... Uh, Fish in Exile, for instance, would be edited it as, was. as a as a novel. It was heavily edited, but it by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it went through three editors. Like uh, two of my editors, two of my um, two other people um, edited it first before it came into the hands of Coffeehouse Press, and Coffeehouse Press also edited. It. Mm. Um, uh, and I agreed to about 95% of the editing process. I'm like, oh, yeah, that works. Um, I have no problem. Um, once I get the energy of the piece, the atmospheric uh, condition of the manuscript, um, uh, its protagonist's um, journey, um, anything that, like, minor either changes in grammar or a few sentences here and there, I feel like those changes are more 
more or less like, um, you know, like you take a vacuum cleaner and you make sure that all the things, but you don't change the shape of the room or the way it's presented to me. Um, I feel the editing process is just, it doesn't violate the manuscript's original energy mm-hmm. or spirit. And so um, when I took a course with Talia Field in her fiction class the first time, it was my the first time I ever took a fiction a workshop. I've never taken a writing course before, so I was like, completely ambushed <laughs> by her present. I was like, this is what fiction um, workshop is like. And she 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 encouraged us to produce. Like we, we um, I think at one point we were like, um, we were, there was like 150 pages to 180 pages per week worth of um Wow. Like critiquing other people writing. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like it was insane. Um, but it was good insanity, I think. Other students didn't feel the same way. But I thought it was good. And she said, when you edit your work, I don't want you to just remove a sentence here and there. You know, Like it's just it's basically nitpicking. She wants you to do when you edit, you really edit. Like you change the shape and the form and the atmosphere of the piece completely and utterly. And that kind of um, um, editing is very difficult. Um, I, When I do edit, I would write a new piece. Mm. <laughs> Basically, you're... Uh, so I took the same manuscript and I turn it 180 degrees and it's completely you maybe recognize a few words from the original manuscript and but the tone the energy uh, the atmosphere of the piece had had a complete changeover and so that's how I edit and that's how I was able to produce like new work is because I don't recycle the own work I take what I feel like is not working in that piece and I'm going to try to put it in a new form and and so that's how um, I value or ha- how I um, navigate through or how I structure my own editing process. Yeah. It's not for everyone. Some people just like cleaning in sentences and making it really perfect and move on to the next sentence and make sure that um, on a microscopic level, it's completely clean with like a, like a, um, what is it, those surgeon use when, or um, culinary artists use with a tweezer. They just go and they just pick one strand of garlic that's the size of like an eyelash and they move it on top of like a very well curated um, uh, tofu and so you get to see how that one strand of garlic is operating on that tablet of tofu but for me um, I just like take a hammer to the, the, the tofu and I smash it 
and it flattened, and you do not know where even the strand of that garlic even exists, and if it flew away because it, the impact was too heavy. And that's how I add it. <laughs> it's yeah. not for everyone, the hammer method versus the, the teaser. Hammer, hammer tofu method. Yeah. Um, C- could you read for us, uh, I ask the sentence? Yes. In the story collection? Um, actually, I, I wrote like three or four pages of that, and then I submit it to noon. Mm-hmm. And so Diane William actually edited this piece. Oh, okay. I so asked the sentence. It's an unusual piece then in that yes. sense. It's uh, very well edited by uh, Diane Williams. She's an amazing editor. I don't know how she does it. I love that magazine. Yeah, and she does noon, and she edits it. Um, she's one of those people that put a hammer. She doesn't, I mean, she does the teaser method, but it's after after the hammer. After the hammer, that she's like, okay, let's let's go find that strand of garlic, and then <laughs> let's put it back on, but but the hammer goes first. Hmm. I asked the sentence. I asked the sentence to move across the carpet floor. I asked it to not drag its paragraphical legs while doing so. I asked it not to be lonely, not to have ethical issues with women with menstrual cramps or periods and whatnot. I asked the sentence to conduct itself in a way that does not deny the social conditions of other sentences, that does not make any sentence feel left out or suicidal. I asked the sentence to be chivalrous, to open semantic doors for women, and not to treat children as linguistic concubines for imperial expansion. I asked the sentence not to open fire on other sentence. I asked the sentence to be self-reliant, to use itself as a mirror for narcissistic reasons, and not to ask other sentences for monetary support. I asked the sentence not to be I asked the sentence not to hypnotize other sentences so that they don't become organ donors to objects nouns, pronouns, and indirect objects. I asked the sentence not to be an alcoholic, not to inebriate streams of consciousness, the passive voice, cd right. I asked the sentence to be reasonable in a Haitian a ransom. Just five more sentences, just five more sentences, and I will let your mother, the paragraph, go. I asked the sentence not to leave her semicolon inside a hot van in the middle of the summer and to leave the Budapest train station, but never to walk 105 miles to the border of Austria. I asked the sentence not to write that sentence, you know, that sentence, the one where it has too much hyper-masculinity in it, the one with the toilet lit up, you know, that one. I asked the sentence to please, to please Mary Gary Lutz. We've been listening to Vicky now read from her story collection, A Brief Alphabet of Torture. Well, Gary Lutz is an interesting way to end a piece on, on a sentence. Um, is, he, is he a tweezer aficionado, do you think, in his sentences? I don't know his method of editing. Um, I just know that um, he wrote 
like um, this piece called The Sentence is a Lonely Light Place to Be. It's one of my favorite pieces, It's actually. one of my favorite as well. And he uh, wrote a more recent one about the paragraph. Really? Yeah, in oh. 3AM magazine. It's oh, similar. It's like a kindred piece to it. Yeah, but I better read that one, too. Yeah. And so when I read that, I remember to <laughs> <laughs> um, a reference him. So it's an... Um, Acknowledgement to having read his piece called The Sentences as a Lonely Place to Be. Yeah. Well, when asked about the origins of this collection, you've said it is a book born primarily from semi intense meditation on torture and comprised of many divisions of feminine affliction and ontological wretchedness. The collection is primarily violent, with some sections devoted to existential elegance and eroticism. So can you can you speak to what prompted this semi-intense meditation on torture? Well, I uh, was collaborating with another um, writer. She was currently, uh, she was at that time, PhD student um, at Brown, I think in comparative literature. And she says that she's a really good teacher, and I, I, I truly believe she is. Um, and so she loves gives stu- giving student assignments and prompts to get them to write. Mm-hmm. And so part of our collaborative effort was to produce a manuscript, a quasi or almost um, a manuscript together. We were just going to write. And so she assign me the torture, both of us, torture assignments, right, about torture. It didn't appeal to me immediately. Um, But since I was participating with her and we were collaborating together, I didn't want to deny myself the opportunity to explore something that was very uncomfortable for me and something that I've never done before. Um, I wrote difficult pieces before, but not. It, they were born of of the need to when the piece came to me, not because I sought um, a particular kind of um, um, method or 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 subject out. And so when she suggested, I was I felt like a deer. <laughs> um, like a deer with the headlight, you know, I was just completely blinded by my own discomfort. But I got to it because we gave each other like a window in which we supposed to submit the piece. And I was committed to doing it and doing it well. And so the first part of the time I went and I did research. Hmm. I researched on all the different types of torture. And some of them, I don't know if I want it to mirror it. So I I was just studying my consciousness and I was like, what are some of the torture forms that I felt like um, that that can be explored? And... And so I just, I sat down and each piece came, like each week we submit a piece um, 
she didn't submit, but I end up doing about a manuscript worth of submission for our collaboration. And so it saddened me that I didn't get an opportunity to see her version of what constitutes torture, but my commitment to it produces this manuscript. And so it was divided into, um, originally it was just one large manuscript, and I felt like maybe it may have been too much. So I split it. Half of it, uh, some part of it, some of it went into the old philosopher. So, um, um, the so these really are pieces that are, um, you've called yourself an eco writer mm-hmm. and that you recycle your writing. And I love that idea of the garment or the fragment from a fabric. Um, and these really are pieces that are being cut from like one long scroll. Yeah. In it's a way. Basi- yeah. It's basically, I that become different books. Yeah. I was just like, I sit down and then people give me certain assignment or I give myself assignment. I do a whole bunch like they come at once. They don't just like, okay, I'll sit down and all right. I have different writing rituals. And part of those rituals that I was in, I just produced when I was called to produce. I sat down and I wrote and I didn't look at them for the longest time. And then when like I need to submit for a manuscript or something, needs, someone asked for it, I'm like, okay, I'll just go through my hard drive and I'm like, okay. This looked like a piece that could belong there. And when I submitted to um, a night boat, the collection, there were three manuscripts, three po- uh, poetry manuscripts that I took apart. And I just like, okay, I'll just try to mix and match you. And so I just took one manuscript from here and here and there and... Compose them to one, and once they, um, I just don't know how they receive. You know, like at least I give people like uh, sample bites of each, and then uh, once that manuscript is accepted, then I'm like, okay, um, I'll bring back the original. Um, but because uh, Night Boat uh, accepted the first version of it, um, it couldn't go into. Um, a brief alphabet of torture. So I took other pieces that I've done in the past and combined with the um, a brief alphabet of torture. Well, we've talked a little about, the, I think, the ways in which your different poetry projects right now are connected is more obvious. But but your prose, as you, you're alluding to, is is interrelated too. And you, you've said about a brief alphabet of torture, despite being a collection of short stories, it's not a departure from my novel. It shouldn't be seen as a stranger but rather a sibling, like a half-sister or an older sister of Fish in Exile. And you've talked about writing Fish in Exile while trapped in an abusive relationship, which made me wonder, since these books are siblings, if, if your meditation on torture was also in some ways a meditation on the torture of being trapped in an abusive relationship. It's more obvious in f- Fish in Exile, but hearing you talk about the collection, it sounds like maybe it isn't related to that that experience at all. Um, I, I wanted to devote a manuscript to what happened to me when I was in that relationship, when I was at Brown and writing Fish in Exile. Um, a lot of those stories haven't been born yet. 
Um, and when I was thinking of torture, I was thinking more like within the political realm, because um, my collaborator, she was very much into protests. So I did in protest in conjunction with um, with torture. So I was doing a research with a slight angle. And so I wasn't thinking of my own personal narrative. And now since I have quite a few manuscripts that are memoir-based, I want to go back and explore that abusive relationship from um, from being trapped there. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted... I didn't, because I was so close to it, I didn't feel like I was ready to write about it. I think I need sort of some distance. And now I have distance from my past. I feel like I can tackle it. Um, I don't know if it would be torture-based, but um, I think this would be like experience-based, like what to avoid. Um, It's like certain signs in your life, and it tells you what to do, and then you just don't heed it or follow it. I think um, I think I think with distance, I don't think it will become a torture, yeah, a document. I think it, it will become something else. Well, you, you've, you said that you had to disguise your own voice in Fish in Exile because your lover was reading it as you, as you wrote it, and that it was, in a way, speaking of politics and torture, in a way it was like writing under fascism or communism. Uh, everything had to be encoded and subtextual. And it reminded me of this paragraph in, in Fish and Exile that I'm just going to read that feels like a nod. At least I imagine that this is one of those coded places where you say, um, you don't want happiness as a lover. It's just a temporary lover. There are knives behind that joyous, joyous face. You can't trust happiness to treat you right. Happiness sometimes walks out on you in the middle of a conversation. Happiness is rude at times. But pain, pain is reliable. Won't walk out on you that way. Never would. You may never have a lover like this again. So you dress your pain up so it won't be recognized by anyone. You camouflage it with accessory personalities. You don't want just anybody to have a hand on your pain to caress its inner thighs. You know that would be a violation, and you must protect your lover. You must protect your pain. You think it's all you have. So if I understand you correctly, that phenomenon isn't really part of this collection of a brief alphabet of torture, this no. this um, encoded voice. I actually wrote that the day or a few days after... Um, she left my apartment hmm. in Providence. I actually sat down, and I just remember writing that piece because um, I was trying to finish editing Fish in Exile. And I remember writing that hmm. very well. Um, and I remember just, like, revisiting all the narrations that I experienced with my own um, experience when I was in that relationship and that came um, she didn't get to see that version uh, she she saw the the, the version that I sent um, for workshop at Brown uh, when I was uh, in Talia's class when we were submit our large project at the end so I submitted Fish in Exile but it was in it was half of the manuscript it was when 
Um, so I took that summer, the summer when she left, to complete the manuscript because then it's it has a voice that it could be of its own. I didn't realize that I was encoding it while I was doing it, but in retrospect, I realized, oh, I need to clothe myself. Um, I remember having a conversation with my friend Joe then, and I said, my family, we escaped communism, <laughs> but I found communism in a <laughs> in a relationship, yeah, <laughs> and so in the romantic relationship, and so, and he just like he 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 knew what I was talking about, and since he was uh, helped me a large part in how to lead that relationship and how to, um, he helped me a lot actually, and so I'm very grateful for um, his protection. Um. So, yeah, you were very uh, astute to recognize that, that... That passage. That passage actually came from being in that abusive relationship. It came all at once. It was just like I wrote, I wrote that within like 15 minutes. Um, and, and then it needed to be in Fish and Exile, but I just didn't know where then. Mm. And eventually it found its home somewhere in the manuscript. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to the poet and writer Vicky Now. I wanted to ask you about both the role of sex and genitals, for that matter, in your work, and um, and what sort of aesthetic or uh, effect you're looking for in, in them. Because we get um, penises and clitorises in umbilical hospital we explore the superpowers of the clitoris in a brief alphabet of torture some of the most difficult to read torture is focused on the genitals um but either way much in much of your work we get sex and the description of genitals foregrounded in an unsentimental way that makes penises and clitorises almost feel like strange creatures like they're defamiliarized creatures on each person's body almost and but i i would love to hear you talk a little bit about it because you return to them um to the things that don't get spoken and speak them i think the reason why i'm able to write them so easily then is because i don't view them as like body parts they're just like like you know, like a doorknob, uh, or like um, you know, like a French toast or something like that. You just like, you just you know they exist. They're out there, but I don't associate. I dis this for some reason in my consciousness. I deassociate um, words with those words, um, um, genitals with just like regular objects that you find around the home, like, you know, a coffee mug, um, a telephone, um, uh, um, even just um, like um, um, a toothbrush. So because I don't view them as body parts, gave me a lot of freedom just to write them. And when I write them, and since I don't really like 
reread my work that often. I don't have an emotional connection with them or a sexual connection with them until other people approach me and say, wow, your work is really sexual. And then I'm like, I, I guess. <laughs> then I realize that they are sexual, but like, what am I to do? They, they exist in the world. Right. And so, so the viewers are making me aware of my words or my word choices. And now when I write, I, I hesitate now. I, I'm less likely to, because they are becoming body parts now for me, I view them now as like um, gen- actually genitals as genitals and not doorknobs or a swirly chair. Um, I've become so self-conscious that I, I hesitate to use them now. Mm. Um, so my, the manuscript that I'm writing more, uh, do not have those words so much, like the current one that I'm working on. Um, I think they almost are non-existent. Interesting. Um, so, and now when I, when I read them, they, I feel very, very self-conscious. I feel like, um, I feel very naked now. Um, I didn't realize how, how provocative they are. Um, when I wrote them, they were just like manuscripts that needed to be born from my imaginative bank. I was just like pulling things out because they need to uh, exist away from my imagination and out of my imagination. I I would have all these creative energy and they they need to come out in the world and so I let them. And then when they are published, I'm like, well, they need to be out in the world. And so uh, they are published. But, yeah, now um, I feel incredibly shy about those words. And Do you I, know why? That, why that changed? I think um, the memoir that I was writing addresses some of the deepest most terrifying issues of my past and because I dealt with them instead of bury them instead of like abandoning them in some sort of post-structuralist style I I, I, I've been liberated from my own past so because I'm liberated in that fashion I feel like I feel incredibly cautious, mm-hmm. like, um, I guess, you know, like, I think a part of, the part of me that um, value a particular kind of tenderness, devoid of particular sexuality, has been born, and I want to embrace that part of me that doesn't include sex writing in it. It's kind of strange. It's yeah. it's like um 
it worked really well for me in the past, and now I don't know if it works very well now. Is it weird now to read those pieces? Yes. Out loud? Because <laughs> I was going to suggest another one, but now I'm like, well, maybe we shouldn't have you read another one of oh, those. Well, I don't... Um, I'm I'm completely more aware that I'm reading them. Um, and I do read them, but um, I don't have the same... Uh, response to them like in the past where it's just like nonchalant oh it's just there now I'm just like um, I I feel more shy about reading them um, but I'm not I'm not completely a nun <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Not You're yet. moving that way, though. <laughs> not yet. Um, yeah, like certain sections in Fish and Exile, for instance. Um, in the past, I would just read them, and then I just like there. And now I'm like, oh my god, I wrote that. <laughs> huh. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about the body and bodily functions also, including sexual function. Because we get a lot of food, and we get a lot of cooking, we get a lot of bodily functions and odors, and we also get a lot of animals and sea creatures in the presence of nature, but not nature as this friendly, soft thing sometimes, but also nature as maybe less benevolent. And all of it has this sort of elemental, primal quality to it. Um, where the personal narrative of like the human characters is only one small factor creating the story. I mean, even like a person's genitals feel like they're creating the story independently of the, of the person. But I wondered when you're talking about how processing your past, I don't know what you're writing about ex ex explicitly in the memoir, but you've talked about uh, your family crossing the sea and about to escape Vietnam and in an interview about Fish in Exile, you, you said, my family spent three days and three nights inside of a tiny boat with 30 other people. Feces and vomit and seawater were up to my waist. Inside that boat, I smelled everything primal. And I don't want to be like too reductive, and I don't mean this to be like psychoanalytic, but you've connected this experience to the way you portrayed the ocean, for instance, in, in the Fish in Exile. But I wondered if, if you felt like this moment that you described in that interview in some way informs your aesthetics or your thematics in a larger sense. It's, it's really hard to um, um, detach myself from that experience. Um, I think when you are a child, like when I was a child in that boat, and when you experience um, feces and vomit, it just, it leaves a very, um, you can't ever wipe that. No matter how many times you wipe your, wipe your counters or clean your bed sheets, it just taint your memory. Um, I 
I don't know how to express. Um, I think what happened in, I think, I, I don't know what author, is it Flannery, Flannery O'Connor or another writer, but it says like, what happened in your childhood shapes your entire whole adulthood life for the rest of your life. Um, I feel like that moment on that boat dictate about 90% of my existence. Mm. I have a particular kind of repulsion to feces that I, I cannot, I don't know how to write it out of my system. But I've written about them. Um, and um, it's, it's, just, it's just a very hard... Um, I'm, I'm still dealing with them, with that scene in which I was on that boat with my parents. And I remember, I remember the sea. And I, for the longest time, I was pulled by the sea. I would, that's why I love Rhode Island so much. I just, and, and I love Brown University because I could take the bus to the sea. And I took them quite frequently because it, kept on demanding that I address my past. And everything I wrote would be some sort of an experimentation of that. Uh, And I could never, no matter how often I wrote, I could not erase that particular memory. I haven't been able to erase a lot of my memories since I have really strong um, emotional memories. I just have really good memories of my childhood. Um, and so I'm addressing them through various memoirs. Um, I collect books of them. And there's so many of them, I just don't know how to tackle them. Um, but I wish I could be at a place where I can depict my my existence on that boat without the landscape of defecation and vomit. I want to write a piece that that is free from from that soilness, but it's hard. Um, I didn't realize that with umbilical hospital, there's just so many clitorises and assholes. It's just so many of them. And I don't know why they dominate consciousness. Only that scene on the boat is the reason why some of the work that I produce have repetitions of certain words because they are. Um, um, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about your relationship to English in that regard, too, since Vietnamese is your first language, and you often have called Latin your second language, and really English is your third language. Um, Is being a writer in English sort of a compromise, given the fact that you're 
of, of who your readership is, and thus there's this sense of loss and exile in the language? Or is it a place of liberation because of distance, um, somewhat away from your, your mother tongue? Well, I, I think English is very liberating. I don't think it's stifled me at all. Um, and, and you are right to say that it gave me a lot of distance. If I wrote anything in Vietnamese, it would be just too... I would just have a meltdown. <laughs> um, just Vietnamese is a very poetic language. It's incredibly beautiful. It's, it's so tender. Vietnamese, it's like there's certain words that I just... I just love, and and I feel like it shouldn't be in a book even because it's so beautiful. I do feel, however, that um, um, there's a lot of Vietnamese, my, the Vietnamese language in my writing. It's just invisible. Like um, people said, oh, this sentence is strange. I don't think it's strange. It's just, I think it just has a lot of Vietnamese in it, like mm. my Vietnamese past in it. And so it gave that English word or sentence that slant that you don't see because it's not English, English. It has my, like a, a somatic system of Vietnamese-ness embedded within and between each words of the English word or between the letters of that English word that when people read it, it's like, oh, your work is really strange and poetic. I don't think it's strange or poetic. I think it's because I live in Vietnam. I was an immigrant. We were refugees. And so there it is. Um, it's just not written in Vietnamese, that's all. So you don't see that reference or that reflection or that domination. But when I read my work, I'm like, this is so Vietnamese. <laughs> but it doesn't look like Vietnamese. It looks nothing like Vietnamese. It, even, it doesn't even sound like Vietnamese. But there is a phantom, I think, sonic volume that is quiet and silence in my work. And I want to say that silence, that invisibility is very Vietnamese. It tastes and sounds like pho. It, some type of Bun mi It's and when you eat it, you feel like you're eating something very postmodern. Um, but it's traditionally Vietnamese. And I know one of my peers, and a few people have addressed me like this: "B, you're very Vietnamese. A lot of writers are writing ethnic writing. Why aren't you doing it?" I said, I'm doing it. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you just don't see it. <laughs> right. it's, uh, my work is very ethnic. <laughs> um, but it didn't have ethnic word in it. And it didn't have like 
Like, let's say if I had written a brief alphabet of torture or fish in exile with title, like, um, Galuvam, that's the Vietnamese translation of fish in exile, then it's not ethnic enough. Um, and I think people have a very narrow view of what ethnic writing is. And I just have a very broad outlook on my own writing. And she said, you should, should write more ethnic writing. I'm like, it's ethnic. <laughs> um, um, and I, I know what she meant. Like, why don't you write like Nam Le, you know? <laughs> and um, why don't you, um, you know, in some parts of the sympathizers of Viet Tan Wing, you know? And even though he doesn't use diacritical re remarks on his manuscript, it's some of those are Vietnamese. But some of those words are, were Vietnamese. But I want to say that the diacritical marks that you don't see in my manuscript is the experimental. It has taken place at the experimental, yeah. in the experimental form. Well, and, well, speaking of experimental versus mainstream, I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship, of the relationship of your work to your family reading it, because you've described how you have sometimes have written work that you would consider more mainstream, because in a, in a desire to connect more with your family, who, who might have more difficulty relating to some of your more overtly experimental work. Can, can you give us some examples of, of work that you've made that you've made with your families as the readership in mind? Well, Fish in Exile was the original intent. It didn't turn out very well. <laughs> uh, it didn't turn out very well at all. Uh, my sister couldn't even finish the first page of Fish in Exile. And um, I did a lot of research in Harlequin Romance. I read Harlequin Romance and I thought, okay, uh, it shouldn't be that hard. It's in English. <laughs> um, it has a particular structure. I'm sure everyone can do it. It's really hard. <laughs> I've tried. Um, I've tried making my work more accessible for my sisters. And each time I try, my work gets weirder and weirder. <laughs> it's just, it just so, I don't know why they're weird. Maybe because... I've tried so many times to write more mainstream material. And I think I think my memoir <laughs> is mainstream based, but anytime I say that, people say this is so weird. Yeah. And well, I, I think it's true that your so-called mainstream work is still most people would consider it experimental. Yes. Um, First in Exile is experimental. Um, I knew Umbilical Hospital is not mainstream. Right. At least it was very clear between me and my book that <laughs> there's no delusion here. Yeah. Um, and you, no deception as well. And so I was so glad that I acknowledged that with myself. But like my manuscript that had been out in the world, the ones that are ready now, and I'm... And, um, I'm hoping they will get born soon in the next few years. Um, those, I think, <laughs> finger crossed, mainstream. Yeah. But 
the structure may not be mainstream, but the writing, at least it's like you don't have characters named Ethos, a Catholic. They have regular names. Actually, Carol Maso said, why don't you just change the name to like regular and I changed the whole manuscript. I went through the document and I'm like, I'm going to change it to um, Ethos as Ethan and Catholic as Catherine and see how it didn't work. Yeah. It just didn't, it just didn't, the names didn't fit with the book, the whole manuscript. But I, I tried to, I tried to force Fish in Exile to be what it is not. And it didn't like me very much. Um, when you you did a, a long time ago, you did an interview with Christopher Higgs at HTML Giant about experimental literature. And you have this really great um, line that I'm just going to read. Anti-enthusiasts of experimental literature may view experimental writing as an appendix to be removed at some point from the body, a vestigial organ, not a pertinent apparatus of literature. It is, however, a very important organ, perhaps, not like the heart, where it circulates mainstream through the bloodstream, but it's an essential organ nonetheless. And I, I, I would love to hear, you just mentioned Carol Meso, like you you have the most enviable like pantheon of teachers, Talia Field, C.D. Wright, Forrest Gander. Uh, and then on the on the pro side, you had Carol Meso and Brian Evanson. Um, can you speak a little bit about about those experiences for you? I, I know that um, you've mentioned Carol Mazo talking about the importance of white space, and you mentioned that just now when talking about Vietnamese. Um, can you, can you um, maybe share some of the things that still resonate with you with either of those teachers? Well, um, I believe, like, um, I believe, like, experimental writing is very important. I wish it was, it is celebrated more in United States. I know like other countries like France and European countries are more receptive to more experimentalisms and tend to celebrate their writers and the writings they do. Um, I value experimental writing, but I also value mainstream writing. I think both has have a place in society, and they should be equally valued. Um, I took five years out of my life from experimental writing and really honed my craft toward, after the lack of success, after... After realizing how delusional I was that Fish and Exile wasn't a Harlequin romance <laughs> novel that I wanted to be, I actually took five year of departure from like I didn't like if if an experimental work was born, it was just by like default. It was just like I had to get rid of a particular energy, and so they were born, but. I really shape and re rehone my craft toward mainstream writing. And so because I'm so far away from experimental writing, even though I have a lot of manuscripts that are very experimental, 
I haven't celebrated them. And because of that distance, I feel very distant from my teachers, like Carol Maso and Brian Evanson, because I forced that distance. Um, I've loved quite a few books by Brian Evanson. Um, I, I try to read all my faculty's writing when I'm at Brown or before I arrive to Brown so that I'm well-informed. I, it's hard for me to speak. If you've asked me like five years ago, I would be able to tell you the energy of experimentalism and it would have the shape and form that I uh, when I did the, um, um, the Higgs interview. I'm sorry to say that when I abandon something, I completely abandon it. So I think the reason my work is so intense is because I'm willing to annihilate a whole aspect of my existence in order to embrace the new one. And so I put like 100% of my energy and there's not even like a fiber left of who I was like five years ago. And so it's hard for me to speak of Brian Evanson or Carol Maso or Talia Field um, with the experimentation, experimentalism in mind. Sure. It just... I, unless I allow myself to go back five years into the past and re-abduct myself um, and, and stop estranging myself, um, I would be able to talk to you. But right now, um, my consciousness is so embedded in um, mainstream literature. Um, well, maybe you can just indulge one more experimental question. Okay. If you don't mind. I don't mind. Because um, I was listening to a panel that you were on, a full stop panel on experimental modes of literary criticism. And in it, I discovered, so you're, you're a writer and a poet, a novelist, filmmaker, and an interviewer of other writers. But you were also sort of an experimental book reviewer. And you had this project which sounds kind of as insane as the the sheep machine project of looking at every frame and then writing it, where you set a goal in 2014 to read 300 books and then write 300 reviews. So tell us about that. Uh, tell us why you wanted to do it. What happened? Did it did it change something for you, and either as a writer or as a reader, and and um, and anything else you wanna you wanna add? I love that project. Um, it's one of my favorite projects um, that I've engaged in. Um, uh, originally, it, I didn't plan on reading 300 books. I, I don't know how this idea was born, but I had two other friends. And he said if, we, if he read 300 books and another friend read 300 books and I read 300 books, we would have like 900 books and 900 reviews. Wouldn't that be so great? And I said, yeah. I'll go for it. And so that year, I'm like, 2014, here I come for 300 books. Let's go for it. And so to um, keep us accountable for our own resolution, um, I start posting them 
on a blog. And so <laughs> almost every day, because it's 300 books, almost every day I post a book. And this blog, I looked for this blog, but I couldn't find it. I, I, um, I, 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 uh, I, I kept it private. It's still there. It, it, it's just no one can access to it. And I also kicked everyone off the, so no one could have access to it. But it's there. Um, and it has my other 300 film reviews, which um, I did. Um, but it's, I love it because when I wrote it, I didn't have, I had no one in mind. Like, I didn't, it was, there was an innocent to it. Like, I was like, I didn't think of, like, it was going to be published anywhere. I didn't think about anything other than just to fulfill that. And so when I wrote those reviews, I wrote them in a very experimental way. And it completely violated my desire to be mainstream. Like, I was so happy because I kept part of myself for myself. It wasn't like I didn't turn, I, I didn't have that desire to turn my writing into a lucrative uh, condition where I could live off it. I was thinking impractically. And because I wrote this review, they were so fun. It was just so incredibly fun to do. I didn't think of an audience. I didn't worry about consequences. And so every review I wrote was just so wild and they're so fun and they're so crazy. Yeah, and the, they, the panelists were saying, uh, talking about some that sounded super incendiary. Yeah, they but, were crazy. And I was so completely honest with myself. Yeah. Like if I hated something, I wrote it. I wasn't trying to be neat and, and, and diplomatic. I'm like, this book is the worst poetry collection I've ever read. And I just love it because the level of honesty was so compelling. And it just, it made me love myself because I wasn't afraid to be myself. And and I wrote it and knowing that no one was going to read except for my two friends that um, uh was doing it with me and they were laughing their heads off because I was, I didn't care. Um, there's, there's great power in not caring in that project. And, and also I didn't think I was going to be able to fulfill it too. I was also laughing my head off because I'm like, this, <laughs> this is the first time I won't be able to fulfill what I said I was going to do. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I actually was, I got lazy. I I think like six months into it, I read like only like 40 books or something like that. I was like, <laughs> no one can do that. No one can read 300 books. This is insane. I don't know whose idea was this. And so I sort of tricked myself out of not doing it. I was giving all of the excuses necessary. And I, I wrote a pen name for that reason. I wrote... Um, I had a pain name called Align Zybum, which means I'm a lazy bum. <laughs> I, I start submitting work out under that name. I submitted to like a writing contest uh, under that name. And it got to the point where I knew I was a lazy bum. I was. And six months into it, I'm like, but you don't have to be. 
<laughs> I told my voice, my inner voice, um, had that five second rule in my head that says, you know, you don't have to be lazy. You can. So I said, well, even though I only have read 400 bu- 40 bucks um, in six months, let's see how far I can get. Maybe I won't be able to make the 300, but at least I try. It won't hurt to try. So that summer, I sat my butt down. I went to the library. I borrowed like 50 books. And I said, you know, if you read 50 books by the end of the year, at least you have 90. It's, you know, one almost one third. It's not that bad. The problem with um, um, checking out 50 books in one sitting is that I was also scared about having to renew them and going back to the library with them and carrying new, it's heavy books, you know, like 50 books is heavy. And so I'm like, I don't want to carry all those books back and then having to renew them and, and only read two books. So I got myself down and I was like, you need to read all of this in one week. And I, <laughs> you did it? I think I read like an obscene amount of books to the point where I didn't have to renew those books. And it got me back onto like, like one third of the way at in the sum, midsummer was not bad. It's doable. Yeah. And when I was able, when I got that, like, out, that binging out of my system, reading, reading like two books a day wasn't so bad. When you have to read like 30 of them within a week or something, <laughs> it was just like, it reconditioned me. I'm like, two books? That's nothing. So do you have a, do you have a book? or film recommendation for us? Uh, if you've asked me that earlier, I'd be able to scroll through my blog and tell you um, the thing with reading 300 books is that it gives you no, none of, you can't, it forces you not to retain anything because I would document them. Right. I was like, it's oh, out of your brain. It's out of my brain. Just like the way I, I wrote Umbilical Hospital. If I documented it in my head, I would have no space for creativity. Um, the same thing with like, when you need to make a list of things to do, try not to put it in your head because it takes um, it takes memory space, um, re- real estate on your head, and allows you not to do any work. But I did read a book last year that I really love. I think it was the best book I read, which I didn't read that much. So um, because I didn't read that much, thus it's the best book I've ever read for that year, and it's The Vegetarian. I love that book too. Uh, by um, um, Han Kang. I just, it's a lot of writing in, and have being an Asian American, and we don't get exposed very much to like um, ethnic writing, uh, writing by ethnic uh, or writing by Asian writers. It's when they do exist, I get so excited because we're representative. We our culture is. Uh, presented where not eating potatoes and we don't see characters eating potatoes and nacho cheese and um, not um, uh, macaroni and cheese and so I was just so happy just to see an Asian character eating rice you know it was just it was just from a very um, cultural place I felt like someone spoke about us even if it's just a bowl of rice or um just some Asian habits that was n- rarely get addressed and and the way we exist in this world. 
And so I was so happy that she wrote that book because I could relate to, I mean, I, um, I could relate without experiencing what the protagonist was experiencing and being able to feel like, oh, someone, someone wrote about us and it's, it, it's, and it's, that book is popular, and so it's not something that's esoteric, hidden in a corner, and and so and so in many ways that book's just. I thought it was the best because, in so many different ways. Um, and and from you after Sheep Machine comes out, uh, are the memoirs what we should expect from you next after Sheep Machine? I wrote a manuscript called. An apiary concubine that I really liked the process of writing it. It's so I don't know if it's, I want that to be the next book before my memoir mm-hmm. enters the world, but and because I had in mind also. Uh, that book as mainstream, but it's, I, I think I might be delusional. <laughs> with I love with, the title. Yeah, An Apiary Concubine. Yeah, that sounds um, great. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever you choose to cut from the long fabric to show us next. Uh, it was really great having you on yeah. the show today, V. Yeah, thank you, David, for your very insightful and in-depth questions and your thoughtful and very astute um, um, observation of my work. I really appreciate that. We were talking today to the writer, poet, interviewer, filmmaker, and book reviewer, V. Now, the author of Umbilical Hospital and A Brief Alphabet of Torture. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Viki Now's work can be found at vikinow.com, V-I-K-H-I-N-A-O.com, as well as the bonus material, both prose and poetry, at the Between the Covers Patreon page, patreon.com slash Between the Covers. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatit Ami, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.